Welcome to the True Vine Podcast. Wherever you are listening, we hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and brings perspective that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Beautiful presence of the Lord here in the house today. Very thankful. I honor Pastor and First Lady again and their family. I want to honor also the Waddles and their tremendous ministry. Very thankful for them today. Would you join me as we direct our attention to Mark chapter 14? Begin reading at verse 3. Mark 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, this is powerful, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done, shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Preaching about memorial moments. Memorial moments. God bless you. You may be seated. We have been privileged, my wife and I and family, to travel quite a bit across the globe and extensively across the United States of America. And one of our favorite things to do is to check out memorials. My wife and I had a tremendous opportunity to go and evangelize in Hawaii. If you're going to evangelize, you might as well go to Hawaii to do it. And so while we were there, we took a, I'm lost count, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh honeymoon. And we decided that we were going to uh, take a few days and enjoy some things on the islands. And we visited Pearl Harbor. And there a very sobering memorial of the USS Arizona. Commemorating the military personnel who gave their life in the attack on Pearl Harbor. And the 1,102 still entombed within its watery grave. And when we went out on this plank over top the harbor to look down at the USS Arizona, some of those that were guiding us still had fought in that time. Old men now, but still with tears in their eyes, they asked all the kids to not be laughing and joking and playing. They began to tell personal stories of what it was like all them years ago in Pearl Harbor and that their friends and their 
comrades were below the water entombed in the USS Arizona. I watched as Americans and even Japanese alike threw flowers into the harbor with tears pouring down their face. A memorial to never forget the price that was paid and what the price was paid for. This is so very important that we have memorials in our life. If we do not study history and study the past, we are doomed to repeat it. So we put memorials all across our land. I remember very well ministering in our capital nation And there, the Lincoln Memorial was something that we wanted very much to see. Had the privilege to be there with our general superintendent as we were ministering together at that particular conference. And what an amazing sight to see perhaps one of the greatest presidents of the United States of America memorialized, Abraham Lincoln. And on the side chambers of this Lincoln Memorial, that famous Gettysburg Address that many of us learned to quote in elementary school four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And to realize the price that Abraham Lincoln paid for a united states of America and the privileges we have today. Memorials are there so that we never forget the price that was paid and also what the price was paid for. We need memorials in our life. There beside the Lincoln Memorial is where Martin Luther King Jr. stood in 1963 in a land that needed some changes. And he gave his famous speech of I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. We need to remember all of the memorials. Indeed, I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and he is a hero across our nation, but very revered in Georgia, particularly Atlanta. Half of the streets in Atlanta are called Martin Luther. Luther King Jr. Drive, Boulevard, Street Circle, you name it. The other half are called Peachtree. So if you ever get lost, just go to the corner of Peachtree and Martin Luther. You'll, you'll at least know where you're at. You won't be found. You'll just know where you're at. I've been to the Alamo and remembered with great intention stories of these great westerners and conquering men of the wild wild west and how that they decided just a handful of men to protect a little old building that didn't seem to mean much but the principle behind what they were speaking and still you hear the cries of remember the Alamo. Mere memorials are not limited to nations and to the U.S., but God himself is also very, very big on memorials. 
In Joshua 4 and 7, Joshua leads Israel toward victory in the battle of Jericho. And as they walk through the river Jordan on dry ground, God instructs them to take one man from every tribe and for them to get a rock or a boulder it's a large stone because they put it upon their shoulder and here these 12 men from the 12 tribes would take these rocks from the dry bed of the Jordan as they cross through and build a rostrum build a podium build a pillar of memorial and the instruction was to build this in the shallow waters of the river Jordan. Isn't that interesting? Not on the bank, but in the shallow waters. The reason why is this. In generations to come, when perhaps times were tougher, and the rains didn't come as frequent as they wanted them to for their crops. And now the river Jordan is shrinking down to a small size. Now more prominent in that riverbed will be that rostrum, that pillar, that memorial to remind them that it was a supernatural God that brought them out of Egypt. And it is a supernatural God that brought them into Canaan's land. And the same God that they serve today, even in the times of trouble, is still a supernatural God I hope you have memorials in your life of what God has done for you and the things that he has changed your life that you have built some kind of memorial to never forget the price he paid and to always remember why he paid that price Twice in the scripture, and this is powerful to me, Exodus 3.15, Psalms 135.13. Twice God mentions this, that he is not a God that is far off and cannot be touched. But he is a God that is very personal. And he declares this in these scriptures, that I am a God that is personal, therefore I give you my name. You don't have to call out to me and say, God of the universe somewhere. But you can lift up my name and say, Jesus, and because you know his name, you have a covenant that he's a personal God. This is a memorial to us that he's a very personal. Nehemiah goes back after the land of Israel has become deserted. Only wild animals and vegetation of weeds and briars are where Israel used to be. And now he is intending to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. No wonder Sanballat and Tobiah come by and mock him. What are you building walls for? For the desert animals? Why are you building a temple? Nobody lives here. Nobody resides here. Is it just an act of faith? And Nehemiah makes it clear, no, it's not just an act of faith. But what we are doing here is a memorial to what God has always been to us. We will build him a temple. If nobody ever comes back to this land, we build this as a memorial to God. I love the sign <laughs> that you have visible right here for the multiplied thousands of cars that go by 
to see and to know that someplace here in Old Town is a hope of a life that is greater than this. Hope of peace and a place where strength and miracles and signs and wonders and salvation can happen for your life. This building is not just a place to house. It is absolutely a memorial of what God has done for you and what he's done for you and what he's done for me and what he's done for you. The reason why we invest into this place is not just that we will have some place to go on Sunday and revivals, but it's a memorial to everybody that goes by that God has changed our life and he can change your life as well. In the New Testament, we find memorials. Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian band, a Gentile. A Gentile is a man of prayer, and he's a man of sacrificial giving. This causes memorials in heaven. God declares because of Corn, he's outside the covenant of relationship. He does not yet have the opportunity of the New Testament fulfillment in his life. But because he is a prayer and because he sacrifices of his finance, it keeps coming up before God as a memorial. And God can't forget his sacrifice. And God keeps seeing this memorial as he is a prayer warrior. And so God sends... Simon Peter, the message is preached and the Gentiles are grafted into the body and the family of God because of one of our great, 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 great grandpappies who put up memorials before God. Memorials are powerful. I think it would be something neat and I'm, you know, at that age in my life at 39 now that... uh, I just keep saying it, believing somehow. <laughs> I'm at the place in my life where I, I'm not even talking about goals that I want to accomplish, but, but it's more about legacy. And if this is the last message I preach, and if I never get to do anything else in this life, then what will my life have mattered? To whom will it have mattered? To what effect in the kingdom of God? I I, I guess it would be neat uh, for someone on earth to memorialize you with a statue or perhaps a street named after you or like we do some presidents, elementary schools, high schools, Ronald Reagan High School. I guess that would be pretty cool. We even do this in the apostolic movement and we have certain buildings that are named G.A. Mangan Auditoriums and great men and women of God that we name things after. Urshan College, you know, these type of things. I guess that would be neat. But how much more for the word of God to memorialize not your life, not a lifetime of who you are and what you did, but to memorialize a moment because of how powerful and how significant. This is exactly what's happened in our text This is not a memorial because of what a great life she lived 
or a great momentum of a lifestyle that can change drastically and be a different creature in Christ Jesus. This is memorializing one moment in time. And Jesus said it this power. Jesus said it this strongly and this powerfully. Everywhere in the world that the gospel is preached, this also. Right alongside the gospel will be preached as a memorial for her. Memorial never to be forgotten. Always to be remembered. The price that was paid and why the price was paid. This text that we've read here is in all four gospels, of course, because it's memorialized. All four gospels, and some theologians tend to believe that there's actually two stories here because of some of the facts. I have studied this extensively, and my personal belief is that this is just one story. And four different sides that you are able to see because of perspectives that differ as these writers of the gospel begin to tell us of this memorialized moment. Matthew 26 declares this story. Of course, we read here in Mark 14. John 12 also discusses this as well as Luke 7. All of these gospels seem to be bringing this story in chronological order of how the ministry of Jesus happened, except Luke 7. Luke 7 brings this story in very early, I believe, because the characters that are involved in this story, he's going to use them over and over and speak about them. So he brings the story in early so you'll recognize these characters throughout the gospel of Luke. So as you put together these stories, you now see that Jesus has gone to Bethany a little earlier than the feast would call him to. And perhaps now four days because one gospel says six days before the feast. And then you pick up another gospel and it says now two days before. So I believe there must have been maybe a four-day hiatus that Jesus was resting a little bit. And now two days before the Passover, the last Passover, Jesus is in Bethany. And there is a citizen of Bethany named Simon. Simon. Simon is mentioned in Matthew's gospel, 26 and 6, as Simon the leper. Mark 14 and 3 calls him Simon the leper. Luke 4 only says of him that it was the Pharisee's house. And then later Jesus addresses him as Simon. So put the clues together. It seems very clear that this is one story. Simon is a former Pharisee or a Pharisee who had leprosy at one time. Now obviously he doesn't still have leprosy. Leprosy was a contagious disease at the time and they had colonies outside of society to put people who had leprosy. They were not allowed to socialize within the culture of their time. So maybe and probably this is one of the lepers that Jesus healed. Perhaps the leper in Mark 1 or perhaps the leper in Matthew 8. But for whatever reason, Jesus healed this Simon who used to be a leper and gave him his life back. And now the man out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for him, he invites Jesus and all of his disciples to a great feast. 
gratitude, thanksgiving. And so there Jesus is in the house, and it is probably a festive atmosphere. Party, laughing, perhaps telling jokes, picking on each other. The disciples are there, and the sibling rivalry of these disciples have become so evident in so many stories. But we also find that Lazarus was there, who had already been raised from the dead. And, of course, Martha's mentioned in this story, but she's cooking. Martha's going to be the head chef at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It seems like this was the Lord's favorite cook. She must have been known all over Bethany as, as the cook that you want to get. So the best is available. Simon has hired her. I'm assuming Lazarus is invited because of the close connection that's, that Lazarus and Martha have with Jesus and the disciples. It's very interesting here that the other sister not invited. Mary's not there. And you'll see why as the story goes on. As they are laughing and eating some of the greatest lamb, I'm assuming, and unleavened bread and olives, trying to think Mediterranean here. Pastor has a full dinner for you. You can ask him about it. All of a sudden, the gaiety of the party changes because unannounced you know the story but i'm bringing a revelation if you'll receive it unannounced she just comes into the place where they're eating reclining on pallets eating on a table on the floor if you will or perhaps a blanket and she comes in and the whole atmosphere shifts because she doesn't sneak in and say, hey, is everybody okay? Can I sneak in? Oh, how are you doing, Simon Peter? No. She comes in with tears pouring down her face. And she stands behind where Jesus is reclining and eating. And there she has an alabaster box full of expensive ointment. Theologians declared that what was in this was probably a year's wage for her. So... Whatever your weir's wage is, that's the sacrifice. And she breaks this box with no intent to save it or to just keep a little bit for herself. She spends a sacrifice of everything that a year's worth has saved. And she begins to anoint the feet and the head and the body of Jesus. And that ointment of spikenard is so powerful. Theologians declare that even days later when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you could probably still smell that spikenard from 20 feet away. So understand that her pouring this oil on Jesus has, has ruined their dinner. You can't even taste the lamb anymore because all you can taste is spikenard. It's in your mouth, it's in your nose, it's, it's everywhere. And her attitude and her positioning has shifted the whole party and now no one's laughing and they're watching her. How dare she interrupt the party? She was not invited and now she comes out of the program with tears pouring down her face. 
And her thanksgiving and gratitude is so deep that she lets her hair dry his feet as her tears have washed them. And there is attitudes that are cropping up all along the table. And Simon even himself has thoughts and ideas. And Jesus speaks to Simon and says unto him, Simon, I've got a question for you. And he couched it in a parable. He said, Simon, there was a man that two individuals owed him. One of these individuals owed this man $100 for our sake of understanding. And the other man owed a million dollars. But the key is here, neither one of them could repay. So according to the law of the land, they both should be in debtor's prison. But this man forgave them both. And then Jesus asked Simon, Now which of these would you say loves more? And Simon tells on himself when he says, Obviously, he that was forgiven most loves more. But in reality of the story, they owed the same amount, a debt they could not pay. No matter how much it was, they didn't have the ability to repay. They couldn't help themselves. <laughs> they couldn't get themselves out of this situation. But Simon is telling Jesus and telling on himself, Oh, I see why Mary can act this way. Because Mary... Obviously, is that Mary who had seven demons. In fact, one of the Gospels declares, John 11 and 2, that same Mary who anointed and dried the feet of Jesus was Lazarus' sister. Luke 8 and 2 says it was Mary called Magdalene, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, that sister of Lazarus. And so here you see what must have been in the mind of Simon is, of course I see why she's acting this way and this great sacrifice because I was just healed of leprosy, but she was delivered of seven demons. And infirmities Of course More has happened for her So therefore She should love more She should be excused For this great act Of kindness and sacrifice Even the disciples are declaring What a waste this is That there are so many things That we could do in the kingdom To help people Especially the poor they mention And Jesus makes a powerful statement The poor you have with you always Can I just throw this in We're never going to fix the poor Never You're always going to have the poor with you Because it's not a social status It's a mentality and giving to the poor is not so much about fixing them as is it about us keeping compassion. The poor you'll have with you always. And whensoever you will, you may help them. But the importance of timing. And Jesus makes this statement. What she's done here shall forever be memorialized. Luke 8 and 2 says this that it was Mary called Magdalene. 
Some theologians have said that Mary Magdalene was Mary of Magdala. That is never mentioned in the scripture. It always says it was Mary called Magdalene. Because Magdalene means pillar. It means memorial rostrum. It means memorialized. And never before will you find the character Mary Magdalene until the story is mentioned. And then every time after the story is mentioned in all Gospels, it's called Mary the memorialized one. Mary Magdalene. And every time you say Magdalene, you're memorializing what she has done for the kingdom. For this moment in the kingdom of God for our Savior. I was born in Miami, Florida. But we had family here in San Bernardino, California. So shortly after I was born, we made the trek all the way from Miami to San Bernardino. And there we lived a short time as my older sister and me were still toddlers And mom was pregnant with my second sister. And mom and dad didn't know it when dad was taken in a car accident on that main road between Stockton. Can't think of the small town where it was at. And there mom was lost and didn't know what to do. And her pastor or friends at the time knew of an individual in Georgia whose wife had died from cancer and they had two small children. And so these cupids of a pastors began to put my mom together with my stepdad who would be my stepdad. And they had two dates. Understand the time that they were dating here. So they talked on the long distance phone lines. They were landlines, of course, and it was very expensive at the time. Some of you might remember those days if you're 39 like I am. And so they tried to make most of their communication through what we call now snail mail. And they sent letters back and forth to each other. Two dates. One date he came out to see them and my grandmother good, my mother's mother made sure that I didn't meet him at the time. I guess she figured if he met me, he might not want to marry her. So let's hide a little Timbo. And so I met my stepdad to be the time that he came back for his second date and stayed a couple more days for his marriage. And mom and dad, mom and dad married in San Bernardino. And we moved to Georgia where dad had a good job with Delta Airlines. And, and there we were raised. Dad was a... I'm talking about my stepdad. Dad was a, a, uh, a home mission pastor. He wasn't uh, real gifted in communication skills. His ability to read, he could, he could read very well, but if he was reading out loud, he would stumble through words, and, and uh, his vocabulary wasn't real good. And he had a tremendous desire. In fact, where dad was so strong was one-on-one relationship with people, and he helped so many people. But, but because of his lack of, of uh, visible, physical skills of preaching and 
pastoring, as we would say. The church would grow to 45 people, drop to 30. They'd go to another church where, you know, somebody that was a little more charisma was preaching and grow back up to 40, then back down to 20. And there was my eldest stepsister, Janine, my stepbrother, Anthony, then my real sister, Betty. I was in the middle of both families. My younger sister, Tammy, and then mom and dad got married and had two more kids. Like five wasn't enough, so the seven of us. It was quite a, uh, a dysfunctional family. I didn't realize it till years later when the Holy Ghost started showing me some stuff. stuff. But the background of where my mom came from, I believe it was her grandmother that was a known prostitute of their time and the background where my stepdad came from a place of abuse it was amazing that they put this family together and progressed as much as they did only miraculously by the power of the holy ghost at five years of age we had an evangelist come through and i was pretty sure that god was going to come that night so i went down to the altar and ask God to forgive this dirty, rotten sinner of a five-year-old. That wasn't too far off, let me tell you. I remember Mama sitting there beside me as I knelt at the altar. And tears in her eyes as she prayed me through the Holy Ghost. Five years of age. It was a couple years later until they decided I knew enough about what was happening. So I got baptized in Jesus' name. And that cold horse trough that we used to use all the time. You had stammering lips when you first got in it. You were that close to speaking in tongues because it's so cold. Several baptized that same day. I can remember growing up in that church for the next uh, eight, five, five, eight, ten years or so. And time after time, power of God would move. God would do great things. When I was 13 years of age, Dad resigned the church. Because he felt like our kids, the siblings and my, my siblings needed to be part of a youth group. So he moved up to Atlanta and we made the trek there and dad became associate pastor under a man there in the church. Pastored the church. And 13 years of age, I now have a youth group. It was very powerful at times and it was, it was battles at other times. That's what youth groups are. And so I can remember feeling like as I got older teenager, I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. I thought I was missing something out there. Reality, I was missing something in here. I had not enough knowledge of the heritage and not enough understanding of the great opportunity I had to be raised in the church. And so many things that young people are exposed to. I was an innocent because I was not raised with that. So at 18 years of age, I'm now a man by God. And I'm going to do what I want. And I remember very specifically walking out of church physically. And knowing I was walking out of church spiritually at the same time. And for the next three years in my life, I pursued everything and anything that I thought might bring pleasure 
or fun to experience what I could. I can't tell you how many parties I went to with drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and all these things were happening. And people would put lit cigarettes in my fingers and something not within me, but something of prayer. I could never put a lit cigarette to my mouth. Mr. Clinton, I never did inhale, okay? <clears throat> How many times an unlit reefer was in my mouth, but never inhaled. Often I had drinks in my hand trying to be part of a party. It was just prayers. It was nothing of me, but I didn't have a desire for these things because God answered the prayers and the cries of an intercessing mom and in an intercessory church. But I did give myself to pursuit of the opposite sex, and I became a player. I wanted to absolutely date a million women. I used to make that statement. It was a true thought in my mind. I was working at a delivery place, Domino's Pizza. <laughs> and they had a young girl that was there, not able to drive and be a part of that, 16 years of age, answering the phones, helping with the pizzas. And me and her began to talk, to flirt, and then became boyfriend, girlfriend. In pursuing these things of the world, I never imagined that I would experience what is so clear in the Word of God. Every man is drawn away of his own lust. When lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, sin bringeth forth death. And so because I had no pastor in my life, no youth pastor to encourage me, doing whatever I wanted to, it wasn't long until this underage girl came to me and she said, Tim, I'm pregnant. And I didn't know what to do, scared to death, knowing that my mistakes are starting to pile up on me. What I've been sowing, I'm starting to reap. For the next two days, we were just trying to decide what we should do. And I'm not going to counsel anybody because I don't have a pastor, a youth pastor. I have rejected that in my life. And so finally she has talked to some sister-in-laws. And she comes up with me a suggestion. She said, Georgia doesn't allow it, but across the board in Alabama, we can go there even though it's the second trimester. And we can, we can, uh, we can abort this baby. My sister-in-law is telling me that it's just the wrong time, that, that I'm too young, that you're too young, Tim, and we, we just need to, if we'll just get this problem out of the way with an abortion, then, then you can continue to date and you'll do this and eventually you'll get married and you'll have family like you should at the right time, the right place. And we bought into that lie because we desperately wanted a cheap way out. So I drove my girlfriend across the state line again another felony and there we had an abortion I don't know not what was in the mind of the doctor as he come out and spoke to me he wanted to speak to me and said that he had just taken the life of my little girl and he scolded us some and we got in the car and headed back to Georgia 
And I couldn't stand to look at her because of the shame of what I'd been through. And she couldn't stand the sound of my voice because of the choices and the decisions we made. And the relationship was over. It was all a lie that just get this problem out of your way and you'll go on. Wasn't long after that until I find myself, and I won't elaborate, but I found myself behind some bars in prison for a short time. Society had decided that I was so reckless, I disobeyed the laws that I needed to spend some time. It was reduced to a misdemeanor, so I wouldn't have a felony charge at the time. was looking to go into the Army. The judge was lenient, or Air Force actually. And so there in jail, I began to talk to the Lord that I've, I've messed up my life. And I desperately need another chance. I know I don't deserve it because I've been taught since I was a kid. I had the Holy Ghost and I felt the presence of God and the power of God. I knew what that felt like and I understood all of that and I had the knowledge and the upbringing. I went into this with my eyes wide open and of course I'm getting my just desserts. And when they let me out, I decided to slip into that church service. We were in between church buildings, building a new building and we were church auditorium. A school auditorium is what it was. And when I snuck into the back door, singing had already started. I wanted to just kind of be non-conspicuous. Went down and sat down. I, I, I can't tell you what pastor preached because I was just waiting for him to give the altar call. If you'll just give an altar call, I'll just go there. Instead of God striking me with lightning and destroying me, all I felt was his love and his mercy and his grace telling me that he'll never leave me. His love is everlasting that I haven't gone too far and his grace can cover every situation. Altar call was finally given. I went stood. The stage was about chest high or so. And as I'm praying the altar, I'm beginning to get a hold of God. And I turn to take my suit coat off and lay it on the front pew so I can give everything to God. And my old Sunday school teacher, Jack White, was there. And he laughed at me. He said, uh, Tim, you've come to do business, haven't you? And I said, I'm so sick. I've lived in the way I've lived. If God will forgive me, I want to live for him all the days of my life. And God showed his mercy and his grace to me that night. And I prayed back through the gift of the Holy Ghost as his gift's goodness was upon me. And this time, repentance stayed with me. And I changed some things in my life, got rid of some stuff in my car, in my home, my life, and began to live for God. I determined that I was going to live for God. I sat on the front pew. If nobody else was in the pre-service prayer, I was going to be there. Nobody else was going to worship. I was going to worship. One day in pre-service prayer, God began to remind me of some callings back when I was an eight-year-old. And he said, if you'll let me, I'll use you for the kingdom. You'll travel over this world and you'll see great mighty miracles. And I said, okay, God. Finally, I said, okay, God, I'll do that. I walked out of the prayer room that everybody else had left 20 minutes minutes before pastor was walking from his office to go straight into the pulpit I stopped him not smart 
I said, Pastor, I've just got to tell you, God has called me to preach, and I have said, yes. I don't know. I thought somehow he was going to jump up and click his heels or something. Welcome to the fraternity. I spent three years in the pig's pen. So he put heavy hands on my shoulder, looked around and said, Tim, Tim, don't tell nobody. Whatever you do, don't tell nobody. He said, if you're really called, like you're probably not called, but if you're really called, then it'll show up. Everybody will see it eventually. So you just be the best worshiper, the best prayer warrior. You give yourself around here, cutting grass, cleaning toilet. He's, you just be a spirit of a servant. And so I began to do that with all of my heart. It was a little time later that my worship for God was so strong. But I began to notice that there were actually angels that came to church with us. I'm not talking about the winged ones. I'm talking about the ones with skirts on. And obviously some of them love God as much as I did because their worship and their praise was so beautiful. It's still the best place to find a spouse in a worship service, in a prayer service, in an altar. And so Angel Lois <laughs> was there. And we began to date. Neither one of us can remember the first time we went out or the first time we met. It's like it always had been. So Luscious and I began to date. Luscious to me, Lois to you, in case you're wondering. <clears throat> but there was very little accountability in our lives. And I had not yet been vulnerable and accountable to a youth pastor. So instead of going home sometimes late at night after I got off work, I'd stop by the basement apartment where she lived and we'd spend a little time together. And no matter how much she loved God and no matter how much I loved God and no matter how passionate she was about ministry and passionate I was about ministry, we could not handle the lack of accountability. And it wasn't long until... Lois came to me and said, Tim, I'm pregnant. I so know better. And while I could make excuses and do whatever, every man's drawn away of his own lust. The difference this time is I had a pastor. So we made an appointment. He was very busy that day. He didn't want to come in, but he had made the appointment. And so we came into his office. He sat down, and he's like, okay, hit me with it. What, what you got? <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, Pastor Lois is expecting a child. And his head fell down and hit the desk where he was sitting behind with a resounding crack. He lifted up his head, tears pouring out his face, and he's talking to God. He's saying, God, it's my fault. I should have seen it. I should have done. I should have allowed and not allowed this. And he's talking to God. And then after he gets through talking to God, he looks at me. And I don't understand how you can talk to God that passionately and then be that mad at me. 
veins in his neck as he pointed his bony finger and says, what do you think you're doing? I thought that you were a lover of God. And I didn't have anything to say. So after he blistered our hides for some time, you got to understand I'm the reprobate. She's the goody-goody girl in church. And so this is mostly me. At least that's what it sounded like from pastor. He blistered my hide for a while, and then he said, well, okay, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know. That's why we're here. We need some wisdom, some counsel. And he said, well, Tim, do you love her? And I said, I, 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 I don't know. I'm being honest. I, obviously, I have great affection. I don't know if I know what love is. And this stems from some dysfunctionality that I was raised in. And I'm saying, I don't know. And then he hit the ceiling a second time. You don't know if you love her. Then what in the world are you doing? And he blistered my hide again. And finally, he said, well, we've got to make a decision. He said, Lois, get out of the room. She left. And he blistered me again. And then he said, don't feel sorry for me. He said, "Uh, what are you going to do, Tim? And I fell to my knees, and I don't know what caused me to say this, but I said, Pastor, what does this mean for my ministry and my calling? And he said, Calling? You're not called of God. There's no anointing upon your life. And he just tore me down and beat me down. And then I said, Pastor, what does it mean? And he said, there's maybe one chance in a million that you will ever amount to anything in God. And so I said, so you're saying there's a chance. I said, I want to marry her. He brought Lois in. He wouldn't let me talk to her. He said, Lois, do you love Tim and do you want to marry him? I love him. I will marry him. He said, I'm not asking you, do you and will you? I'm, do you want to marry him? And she said, yes. She said, all right, here's my schedule. You guys are getting married in two weeks. I'm not going to do it in the church because of rules here. I'm going to marry you in the community. You can't tell any of your friends. Only your immediate family can go to the wedding if you want me to marry you. So we wanted pastor to do that for us. It was interesting when we showed up. And at the wedding, by the way, my family was taking bets about how long the marriage would last. One of my sisters encouraged me, here's the keys to my car. You can still leave. You don't have to do this. There was no hope that this thing would last. When we showed up in church sitting together, that was out of the norm for what our culture was back then in that church. And so people began to talk behind their hands. It wasn't long until, and by the way, nobody spoke to us. Nobody talked to us. Nobody shook our hands or loved on us because we were anathema. When Lois began to show, and it was obvious, the mistakes that we had made to everyone, although we knew people in our youth group involved in the same things, but they took precautions because they were preparing for what the sins they made. 
And they had the white weddings and were heralded and given all these things. Yet because we had a baby, it's different. And so finally, when Morgan, our first child, was born, she was the most beautiful baby that you ever saw. And you, you know, most of them look like aliens. Morgan was gorgeous. Beautiful. And the best thing about her is that she was an absolute puker. She couldn't keep anything down. So now all of my brothers and sisters who've been ignoring me and being so mean, now they could come and love on the baby, right? And we'd say, well, you know, she just ate and she's a little bit of, oh, I've had baby puke before. And as soon as they lift her up, it would be like a court right there in their face. I loved it. It was awesome. Oh, I'm so sorry about that, elder sister. We'd take the baby back smiling. Now, the baby was here. They gave us a baby shower. It was a difficult time for seven months being pregnant. Really, the church did not know how to love us without feeling like they were accepting our sin. It's amazing to me that we can't figure this out a little better. Then after that time, it was 12 years from then before I ever stood behind an apostolic pulpit. A lot of crow to eat. A lot of reputation to change. A lot of things to go through. In fact, still, some of them today cannot believe that God has called me to preach. But the truth of the matter is, I'm right there with them. Because I know who I am. And I don't deserve to draw one more breath with his spirit living in me. I didn't deserve for his grace and his mercy to forgive me much less to renew a calling and anointed in my life. It didn't matter how many years that supposedly there was qualifying. I never deserved the anointing to come upon me to preach the gospel. I don't deserve to be doors open for me all over the world. I don't deserve for ministry to happen in my life and for gifts of the spirit. I don't deserve any of this because I'm just a I'm just a mud ball that God has loved somehow. And even though I've failed him time and time and time again. I've come into this beautiful church. With all these great people. With my alabaster box of my testimony. And have dragged my wife Through this testimony that she has lived her life years ago. And said here it is. And I know the gaiety of rejoicing. About all that we've talked about how good God is. That the atmosphere has changed. But this ain't about me. This is my testimony about him. Some have said, you need to be careful telling your testimony. You're going to lose respect. 
People aren't going to listen to you when they hear the terrible you were and what you dealt with. They'll never trust you. They'll always think that you're still at play. And to all of that, I say, I'm an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of my testimony. Into this room, I've dragged my sacrifice. And I think that some here might say, what a waste. But when I look at the story that our text comes from, here's, here's my question. Simon, you should be dead from leprosy. How come you're not pouring out an alabaster box? How about this? Your sister Lazarus, you were dead for days, Lazarus, and the worms were crawling in and out of your body. You were decaying. And when he spoke, Lazarus, come forth, a resurrection happened to you. How can you sit here with this type of worship and this kind of sacrifice and feel somehow justified? The only way you can is if you forget the pit from which you were digged. And your thankfulness and your gratefulness becomes calloused. And you somehow feel like you've been in this long enough. And you don't have to worship that demonstrative. Here's the key. Lazarus had the opportunity. Simon had the opportunity. But Jesus didn't mention anything that happened. Simon spent a lot of money getting this meeting together. He paid all the sacrifice. Jesus doesn't say anything about Simon's memorial. But a memorial moment happens with that type of sacrifice. In the face of that type of peer pressure. In the moment of supernatural operation of the kingdom. And when we understand that, we have an opportunity right now as we're like I preached last night, moving into a threshold of the greatest days of the church. We have an opportunity for memorial moments with our worship of gratitude and with our tears of thanksgiving, with our hair drying his feet. Could it be that somebody here is not worried about anybody else and what they say and what they... But you remember where God brought you from. And you don't care if somebody thinks you're too loud or you're too exuberant or somehow you're giving things away here. I declare for you, there's a memorial moment that God has given you the opportunity for. And if you'll find that kind of sacrifice in worship, if you'll pour out your alabaster box on him because he's worthy, if you'll make this not a church service, but a time of communion with him, there'll be moments of your life right now that'll forever come up before heaven.
as a memorial of your worship. It could be the shifting of revival in your home. It could be the change of revival in this city or this church. It could be the ministry that you're looking for. This memorial moment. That's my altar call. Would somebody come and pour out your oil like praise, like Mary's alabaster box? Would you find a place just to weep because of the gratitude and how much you love him? I hope it's not been too long. I hope it's not been somehow just in your conscience of the past. But I hope it's a fresh testimony. He's a good God. He's a good God. He's a good God. You've been here before, but somebody needs to go past that place. Let a cry come from your lips that expresses your desire, gratitude to heaven. Let an intercession begin to pour from you that is loud, that is exuberant. Mess up the atmosphere of this room. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can visit our website or church app if you would like to give. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe, like and share it with your friends, and tag us on social media. Because we want to witness with you what God is doing in your life. Thank you, and God bless.